We have to be people who refuse to let go of a good conscience. And so we gotta be, we gotta be unafraid to talk about our conduct, our behavior, the things that come out of our life. Paul is really showing us here that there is a close connection between what we believe and how we behave. You notice that? Like, like if you don't wanna shipwreck your faith then you gotta hang on to your faith and a good conscience. So there's a connection here between what you believe to be true and then, and then the fruit of your life, the behavior of your life that flows out of that belief. And, and it's, it's, it's a really big deal. And so a good conscience, let's just, let's just get some understanding here, is where with the help and strength of the Holy Spirit, you are actively seeking to put sin out of your life. You go, man, I don't want this. Like I, you know, and, and the problem is we all sin, right? We all have struggles and, and like following Jesus is hard, but like there is this, there's this refusal in us to compromise. This refusal in, in us to sort of, sort of just um, lay down and give up and say, "All right, you know, I guess, I guess I'll just, I'll just not win this one. This one will get me uh, for the rest of my life." Great to be together today. Uh, we are in week three of our summer teaching series, "The Good Fight." Uh, where we are learning, teaching, and growing through the book of 1 Timothy together all summer long. And uh, if you were here with us last week, I, I took some time to really explain the, the thought behind the series. Uh, because, you know, to be honest, uh, you know, I, think, I think a lot of us in this room are just tired of fighting, you know? And so you, you see the title, The Good Fight. I think a lot of us just don't have appetite for that anymore. And so I took some time last week to really explain that the thought behind the series is, you know, what if we could come together this summer to learn how to stop fighting unwinnable battles? What if we could come together to learn how to, how to maybe stop trying to fight fights that we weren't, were never supposed to be in? You know, that uh, everywhere we look right now, there's conflict. We look around us, there's so much tension, there's all this going on, and most of us just don't have an appetite for that. And so we thought, hey, what if we could come together this summer, instead of, you know, like dealing with all that and, and feeling pulled into all of that, what if we could come together to learn how to really fight the good fight. Like, like, like that there is a fight we're called to. There is a fight that, that, scriptures, that, that scriptures call us into that we need to pay attention to and that we need to fight. And, and what if we could spend the summer looking at that? And, and so in order to do that, we really have to know what we're talking about, right? We really have to have, to have a, an idea of, of what this even means. And we got to be on the same page. And so I gave you this definition last week. If you want to look at it again with me, the good fight is choosing to stay faithful to Jesus and his gospel in the face of great opposition and adversity. And then I added this line this week, all the way to the end. Like, not just for a little while, not just, hey, I had a good 10-year run, but all the way to the end. This is the good fight. This is what we're fighting for. So it's personal fidelity to Jesus and his gospel, right? In the midst of so much that would try to get us to compromise, in the midst of so much that would try to get us to cheapen, uh, the gospel and water it down. The good fight is refusing to let myself drift into blatant theological compromise. It's, it's refusing to allow things into my life that the Bible doesn't give license for. Re refusing to allow things to exist in me that just should not be there. The good fight is refusing to give up. And so this is one of the primary problems that we see facing the church in Ephesus in the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, I, mean, I mean, they have become a, a sort of storm center for theological compromise. All kinds of false doctrines have made their way into the church. And, uh, and so Paul writes to Timothy, and he's very, very, very concerned. 
He's concerned that, that these people who have started out well will not finish well. And so he instructs Timothy to not give up. He instructs him to stay in Ephesus and then to fight the good fight, right? To not give up, to be faithful to the end. You might be surprised to learn that the most important section in the New York Times, the most desired section in the New York Times, is the obituary section. Uh, it's, it's that place, that section in the, uh, the publication where the New York Times sort of measures and marks out uh, you know, the value of, of someone's life, of those in our culture who have died. And as you can imagine, they get thousands of requests every day from people desiring for their loved one's obituary to be printed in the Times. And obviously, they cannot accommodate all of these requests. So they have a process. They have, it's almost like a formula for how they decide, you know, who will be included, who, who will make it into uh, the obituary section and go to print. And and so it's this process of how to determine the significance of someone's life and, and, if, and if, if it meets a criteria for them to be included. So the obituary section of the New York Times is sort of like a who's who. It's kind of a big deal. I mean, you had to have done something significant or you had to have a decent amount of money because it's not cheap to put your name in there, or your obituary in there. And so... Um, so if you read this section... Uh, what you'll notice is that the obituaries, they start out really big. They start out large, and then they get smaller and smaller and smaller as you read according to the perceived significance of the person who died. And so if, if you know, they're celebrities or they had some sort of significant accomplishment, they're going to have the large obituary, right? Um, because the times has determined their level of significance. But one of the things about... The, uh, that's so heartbreaking about the obituary section of the New York Times is that often the very thing that, uh, the very reason for why, you know, this person was, 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 uh, was printed in the Times at all, their, you know, their success becomes the very thing that sabotages the foundation of their life. And so it's what you, what, you, what you read. So you read about like their public success and then you, you hear about all the different marriages they had or that they were alienated from their kids or they had all these financial problems and it's just absolutely devastating. And so you see the Times printing what is, in their mind, perceived significance and yet at the end there's all of these problems, there's all of these issues. And it just reminds me of a thought by G.K. Ch Chesterton, if you're taking notes this morning, he once said this, those who marry the spirit of the age will find themselves widows in the next. Those who marry the spirit of the age will find themselves widows in the next. And so the obituary section of the New York Times, I think, is this reminder that the end comes for us all, right? That all of us, uh, you know, we can't escape it. All of us will one day have to cross the finish line of life and I mean, Pastor Josh mentioned that this past week has been a very challenging week for our family. Um, my wife's dad passed away last Monday unexpectedly. My brother-in-law's dad passed away unexpectedly uh, last week. And so this has just been a week of, of uh, if you've gone through a time like this, it's just been a, a week of, of dealing with emotions that uh, you're not used to dealing with and dealing with different, you know, every emotion probably, right, that, that, that exists out there, uh, trying to make sense of everything. So my father-in-law, he was 62 years, 364 days old, passed away about 30 minutes shy of his 63rd birthday. That's pretty young, you know? And 
so we're going through this week, you know, and I'm like, um, you know, we're dealing with all of it, and, and uh, got a sermon on Sunday, you know, I got to get ready for, and so today, you know, I don't know what it's going to be like, I, I've got some notes, um, I think we'll be good, but I, I, I'll tell you what, like, times like these, weeks like these make you think a lot about life, and they make you think a lot about what matters most, and um, it's times like these and weeks like these where I think you come face to face with your own frailty, you know, I mean, you know what that's like, you've experienced it too. Times where, where you're reminded, you know, uh, none of us are going to be able to escape the inevitable end, that death does come for us all. And what I think is interesting about that truth is that rarely do we ever stop long enough to consider this. You know, I, like we live as if like the, the end will never come, like we'll be the first people in the history of humanity who somehow get to escape it like we're like the ancient egyptians you know <laughs> trying to figure this out you know like and and it just never it, it doesn't work like that like all of us will face an end and so weeks like these situations like these are what cause me to consider my own end and i don't want to just bring that to you today and 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 i think you know without being overly morbid and, and whatever I, I i would like us to just consider that together the race we're all on the life we're living, and uh, what, you know, what could be said of us at the end. You know, my, one of my favorite movies is The Last Samurai. Any Last Samurai fans? Uh, maybe not. Uh, it's like, I feel like we're in Tom Cruise season right now. So, I, you know, I thought I'd just bring him up. But, uh, you know, with, with, with uh, Top Gun recently. But uh, uh, Last Samurai is one of my favorite movies. And at the end of the movie, there's this famous scene where uh, Nathan Algren, who is this uh, he's this American soldier uh, who is over in, in Japan, and, and uh, you know, he ends up going, uh, living with the samurais, but he, uh, at the end, he comes into the throne room of the emperor of Japan, and he, he uh, gets on his knees before the, the emperor, and he, and he presents the sword of Katsumoto, who was this, this great warrior, this great samurai warrior who dies in battle, and the emperor leans forward to Nathan Algren, and he, he says, tell me how he died. To which Algren responds and says, I shall tell you how he lived, right? And I, I, loved, I love that line. It, it like gives you goosebumps when you watch it. And just incredible because it's not so much like what happened right then, but like at the end of his life, like what Algren is saying is like, I want to I talk about everything he was about. I want to talk about how he lived his life. Like these are the things that we are known for. And when you read the scriptures, it seems like the, the writers of the New Testament emphasize over and over and over and over again, if you're taking notes, that in the Christian life, the end is the most important thing about you. Like, it's, it's, it's what you're known for. When you cross that finish line, it's, 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 it's like really, really important what your life looks like at the end. Like, what people say, what people uh, you know, will gather together and remember about you, that it's incredibly important. And so the New Testament focuses a lot of time on who we are at the end who we are at the end. It tells us to give careful attention to the people we are becoming. And we are told, Paul tells us, Jesus tells us, to be faithful to the very end, to the very end. The scriptures tell us in the New Testament, essentially, that it's not just how you start that matters, it's how you finish, you know? So I wanted to kind of take you down memory lane for a minute to just kind of hit that thought home, um, that it's not just how you start that matters, it's how you finish. There are a lot of companies, a lot of a lot of things that have existed in our culture that have been, been very recognizable that started well but didn't finish well. Let me give you some examples like, like, like Sears, right? Look at, right? 
I mean, you guys remember, like, like I mean, some of them exist still. There's like a handful. I, I read there's still a handful of these out there. But, I mean, y'all remember, like, like the Sears catalog? Anybody? Y'all, like, circle your, your, uh, your, your Christmas presents on there, you know? Like, the Sears catalog was Amazon before Amazon, you know? Like, like th- it was like a massive deal, and now they are gone, all but gone. Uh, you remember Circuit City? Circuit City was everywhere. In fact, how many of y'all have ever, ever read that leadership, business leadership book, Good to Great? You remember that? It's a famous one, right? Like, Circuit City is one of the case studies in the book of, like, how you should build your business. And they're gone, you know, no longer exist. Uh, you remember uh, Radio Shack? Uh, Radio Shack was everywhere. Like, you need, you need something. I don't, I don't really even know why you needed to go there other than it was, like, cool to go there and, like, look at electronics and things. I remember buying, like, remote control cars and stuff at Radio Shack. Remember, um... Blockbuster video, come on, like a big deal. Uh, this was everywhere. Lindsay and I, in our early years of marriage, spent plenty of time at Blockbuster, right? Uh, just uh, all of these businesses who like start well, kind of have this, this peak, this apex, and then they, they decline, like they're gone. They're not around anymore. I uh, wanted to give you a few internet trendsetters, internet sensations in the early uh, internet revolution. Uh, you remember uh, the incredible browser Netscape? Remember Netscape? No, anybody? Netscape was like the thing. Do you remember? Um, this is still around, this next one, but um, yeah, let me just give it to you. It's Yahoo, like, okay, it's still around, but like it's not what it once was. Like it was, it was like the search engine. It was like a big deal. And some of you, some of you were, were you know, were, were adapted to Yahoo because you still have Yahoo email accounts, right? I mean, like that's, that's the thing. Um, do you remember, remember Hotmail? Like Hotmail, how many, of y'all, how many of y'all still have a Hotmail account? Come on, come on, let's just, what? That's embarrassing, that's embarrassing. Okay, anybody, uh, okay, what about, what about Juno? Anybody remember Juno? Juno, Any, if you still have a Juno account, I gotta see it. Okay, okay, all right, all right, that's great. You're not gonna raise your hand after last, the last one. Um, AOL, remember America Online? I, like, listen, in, like, 98, 99, or whatever it was, 2000, like, this, I remember logging in onto the internet like this in, like, the dining room of our house, because we had one computer, right, and, and you press the connect button, and it's, like, dial up, and you remember this? Remember you had to put the, the disk in, in the CD-ROM in order to, okay, uh, and then, and then, like, the Google before Google, uh, y'all remember Ask Jeeves? Yeah, come on. Come on, ask Jeeves. All right. So it what is, just blows your mind when like you realize I mean, all of these things that at one point were like on the bleeding edge of technology or on the bleeding edge of the internet revolution, and now they are gone. They do not exist. I'm sure Ask Jeeves is still out there, but like I wonder what their hit rate is. You know, it's it's got to be pretty low. And I just bring that up because because what I think the New Testament teaches. And I think it's really important for us to understand is that in the Christian life, it's not just how you start that matters, it's how you finish. It's how you finish. And so the writers of the New Testament, I think, communicate to us over and over again that living life without the end in mind is not really living. It's not really living. And so in a world, like I just showed you, where everything seems to have a beginning and an end, this is not how it's supposed to be for the Christian. Like, we do not just have a beginning to then eventually end and stop. We are to be faithful all the way to the end. Hebrews chapter 12 in the message translation is, gives really good language to this idea. The author of Hebrews writes these words and says this. If you, if you want to uh, take notes or watch this on the screen with me, read this. He says, do you see what this means? 
All these pioneers who blazed the way, all these veterans cheering us on. So he's talking about those who have gone on before us who were faithful to the end themselves. Uh, the NIV calls it the great cloud of witnesses. Like when you're entering glory and you, you're being cheered on, but like you, you get like a stadium uh, picture in your mind of, of the stands being filled with those who have gone on before us. And so he says, do you see what this means? All these pioneers who blazed the way, all these veterans, they're cheering us on in our own race. It means we'd better get on with it. Strip down. Okay, so, so that, that just means take off anything that's like extra weight. It doesn't mean like actually strip down, right? It means, it means take off any, anything that, that is extra weight that's, that's keeping you from running as fast and as well as you could. So strip down. Start running and never quit. Start running and never quit. No extra spiritual fat. No parasitic sins. Keep your eyes on Jesus, look at this, who both began and finished the race we're in. Study how he did it because he never lost sight of where he was headed. That exhilarating finish in and with God, he could put up with anything along the way, cross, shame, whatever, and now he's there in the place of honor right alongside God. It's incredible. It's incredible. The author of Hebrews says, start running and never quit. Never lose sight of where you are headed. In the Christian life, this journey we are on is often compared to a race. There is so much language in the New Testament about the Christian life, how it is this race that we are on. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, the Apostle Paul writes and he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? but only one gets the prize. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Saying finish the race, cross the finish line. Run in such a way as to get the prize. The Apostle Paul is, is like the first one to basically say, if you're not first, you're last, right? I mean, like, like his, I mean he's, he's the one who, I mean, we could give him all credit and copyright for that phrase right there. I told you the story before, but years ago, uh, I was invited by some friends to, Joined them on a race, um, and it was, it was the half marathon here in Des Moines, uh, the Dam to Dam, if you remember, it was close to half, um, the 20K, and so I, uh, I was kind of convinced to do it, uh, clearly I'm, I'm a runner, so I, I, uh, I was convinced to do it because uh, this was like, I don't know, early, mid-2000s, like I, I was... Um, or late mid 2000s, I had a, I had a friend of mine who who was willing to hold me accountable to some physical uh, uh, exercise and things like that with some other pastor friends of mine, and so he offered to buy us these Nike Plus running shoes when they were brand new, and and the iPod Nano, and 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 like we'd have this Nike Plus website, you know, we keep each other accountable for how many miles we've been running. Hey, we're gonna run this race like in six months, but we got to be training, and so you know, you'd log into this website, and everybody would be like progressing, and. You know, I'm still like back here, you know, towards the, towards like the beginning, you know, with very few miles, if any. And, and so the deal was that, that in order uh, that I had, like we had to cross the finish line or we had to pay him back for everything. Well, you know, I wasn't interested in paying him back. And so three weeks before, and so three weeks before the race, I decided to start thinking about training, you know. And so I, I decided like I would stop 
eating like bad stuff and stop drinking, you know, pop and things. I'm like, and I, like I was an athlete in high school, so I'm like, you know, it's probably fine. Like I'll just, I can just figure it out. And, and so, um, and so I decide I'll start running maybe like two weeks out and I get to the point where I can do maybe like a couple miles, you know, without stopping. I'm like, I'll just like times four or so or five, I'll figure that out. So, um, Anyway, the day of the race, we get there, and the gun goes off, and there's thousands of people, and I hit a wall at, like, one mile in. <laughs> and I'm sitting there, you know, I've never done this, and I'm thinking, like, we're going to, I'm going to do this with my friends, we're going to have so much, we're going to talk and, like, laugh, and, like, it's going to be a great time, and, you know, like, they're keeping me accountable, I'm keeping them accountable, it's going to be a great experience together. I'm all alone. Like, everybody has passed me. The crowd has passed me. I'm all alone. It's like one of the loneliest experiences of my life. I am, I am walking through neighborhoods on the east side, walking through neighborhoods, and there are people like twice the size of me passing me. You know, it's humiliating. And I just, I, I finally get to the finish line, like after a long time, because I'm just, I'm not going to give up, and I'm not going to pay, you know, for my shoes and for the, the, the iPod. And so, um, I cross the finish line, and there are no more medals left to give out. There's none left. There's no proof that I actually did it. And I just tell you that because I want you to know, like, Paul is saying, run in such a way as to get the prize. He's saying, don't run like Pastor Jordan runs, okay? That's what he's saying here. I don't know if any of y'all ever run a marathon or run a race like that. I, I was reading about that. You know, there's, there's, there's some different walls that they say runners, runners hit. Uh, one is uh, a wall where they run out of strength. Have you ever experienced that? Like, like mine was like, yeah, like early, you know. I, so, but maybe some of you, you know, you know what that's like. You're running, you're, you, you know, and you just run out of strength. Others, they say the wall, they run out of desire, you know. Like, I, I just, this is dumb. Why am I, I'm not doing this anymore. This is, and they run into that wall. And the other one is they run out of vision. They start, they, they start to lose vision for why they were doing this in the first place. And uh, I, can, I can attest to all three of those. Uh, and they happened before I hit the half mile marker. But... <laughs> But this is, I mean, this relates so well to the Christian life. Because we hit walls all the time. Times where we just run out of strength. Times where we just run out of desire. Like, I'm not sure I want to keep doing this anymore. I'm not sure, like, I don't know. Like, yeah, I'm maybe not going to completely give up. I'm not sure I'm going to do it, like, with the same level of intensity like I have been doing it. And then we just run out of vision, too. Vision for our life. Like, you know, that, that following Jesus really does lead us to the destination that, uh, that we so desire. The idea with the Christian life is that it's not just that you at one point ran. It's how you ran. It's about how you finished. We want to be people who finish well, do we not? And I don't necessarily feel very qualified to speak on this subject, mainly because I haven't finished yet, you know, and uh, let alone finished well. Like, you know, I'm like, let's talk about something that I haven't done yet. And, and, but what I do know this morning is that I'm at a place in my life where, like, I really want to, you know? I, I really want to finish well. And I'm guessing that that's the goal of everybody in this room. When it comes to your relationship with Jesus, when it comes to this spiritual journey we're on, I would just about bet all of us in here want to be people who finish this race well. Jesus says in Matthew 24, he says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. He's saying the one who has the end in mind while they are running, like Jesus in Hebrews who never loses sight of where they are headed, 
Not just someone who's great for a season and then they give up and don't make it all the way to the end, but the one who lives life with the end in mind. And this brings us to our text this morning in 1 Timothy that I want to give you. And it's three verses. That's all, that's all I got today uh, in Timothy. But I, it, really, it really communicates some things to me this week, especially um, that I think are really important to look at. And so 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 20, Paul says, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them, you may, what is it? Fight the good fight. Holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. I don't know entirely what that means. I just know you don't want that to happen. It's not good. That's right. And so what is the good fight? You know, we gave it some definition at the beginning, but Paul really explains what the good fight is. He says it's holding on to faith in a good conscience. That's the good fight. This is the fight that we are called to. And I want to tell you, like, even if you've lost appetite for fighting, everything going on around us, conflict everywhere, if you don't fight for this, you'll lose. If you don't fight for this, you'll lose. If you don't fight to hold on to your faith and a good conscience before the Lord, you will lose. And Paul tells us that some in the church in Ephesus have rejected this. They've, 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 they've rejected their faith or they've, and they've rejected their good conscience before God. According to Paul, by doing so, they have shipwrecked their faith. And what's, what's interesting about this is, you know, there's all different kinds of theological points that have been made over the years in terms of, like, salvation. Like, when does salvation actually happen? And can you lose your, your, faith, your salvation and all that stuff? And I, I don't want to get into all of that because there's differing uh, ways to look at that. And, and, and you know, I, I'm hoping in this room, you know, you don't have to worry about that too much. But What's interesting about this is that, is that Paul makes it really clear that regardless of whether you can lose your salvation or not, well, we don't know, but you can, you can shipwreck your faith. And I don't exactly know what that means. You can shipwreck your faith. Like, in other words, what he's saying is it is possible to not finish the way that you started. Like, that's possible. It is possible for some of us in this room today to, like, get to the end of life and be in a worse place with the Lord than we are right now. It's possible. And he gives us this example of Hymenaeus and Alexander who, who were really two prominent men in the church in Ephesus. They, they were undoubtedly Christians, but they had become sidetracked. They, they'd become sidetracked by giving themselves over to false doctrines. And so these are two guys we don't know a lot about, but, but we can understand that while Paul is away in prison, He's so he's planted this church, he's been arrested, he's in Rome, that there have been new leaders who have risen up in the church in Ephesus in his absence, and two of them are these men, Hymenaeus and Alexander. And, and so in order for them to ascend to a place of importance and prominence in the church, they had to at one point in their life be running the race the right way. And Paul writes and says that there is a crack in the foundation of the church and that there is a crack in the foundation of these men who were at one time faithful, and at one time they had, I mean, they would have never embraced anything close to compromise, but now they have. And, and so things 
uh, eventually change. They begin teaching false doctrines. They begin giving themselves over to things that they should not be giving themselves over to. And, and the result is tragic because the Apostle Paul essentially kicks them out of the church. These guys are, uh, they, they are allowing things into their life that are a violation to the doctrines of the church. I talked last week about what doctrine is, right? It's the beliefs and the positions of the church all throughout history. Like it's the beliefs and the positions of, that the church have, has held throughout history. And so, and, and so they have violated these things. They've allowed things in that do not mesh with the gospel of Jesus. And Paul says, look, I, you can't just stay in the church if you're going to live like this. You can't, we can't just mix and match and take a little bit of this with a little bit of that. It, it distorts and it corrupts the beauty and the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus. And so to, to really teach these guys and to really set an example, he sets these guys out of the church and he refers to that as handing them over to Satan. Handing them over to Satan. And what that basically means is he has put them out into the world without the protection of the church. Basically, you know, to follow Jesus, you can't do it on your own. We've, we've, we've beat this like a dead horse so many times. Even though you, you might be tempted to or think you can, like, you can't follow Jesus by yourself, you know? Me, Jesus, and my Bible is a recipe for disaster. Me, Jesus, and his church is, is the recipe for success. And so, um, you know, Paul is showing this, that by setting these guys out of the church, He's essentially handed them over to Satan. They're vulnerable now. They're not protected. They don't have community. They're, they're left to fend for themselves. Satan can attack them as, uh, as he would like. And so Hymenaeus and Alexander, what we understand is they start well. They rise in influence and honor within the church. One time their faith is respected, but they do not end up finishing the way that they start. And so Paul says they've shipwrecked their faith. So all of this to really bring us to a question uh, that I want to answer today, and it's how do we keep ourselves from shipwrecking our faith? How do we keep ourselves from doing this? Two things, right? Faith and a good conscience, holding on to these things. So let's look at one of these first, if you're taking notes. We keep ourselves from shipwrecking our faith by refusing to let go of a good conscience refusing to let go of a good conscience. So this is, the, this is the part of the Christian life that is all about conduct. You know, we don't like to talk about this a whole lot because we love grace, you know? We love grace, and we talk about grace and the blood of Jesus that covers our sins, that cleanses us from all unrighteousness, and we believe all of that. And, and, and we, we, we have a hard time with effort, you know, and, 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 and striving and, and those things. But listen to me, grace, grace isn't op opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning, and so there's nothing you can do in your efforts that will earn you salvation, that will earn you a relationship with God that, that, is, that is right. You can't earn that. But once you have received the free gift of grace, the free gift of salvation through the shed blood of Jesus on the cross, the Christian life is all about effort after that. It's all about just going, look, I want Jesus more. Like what I have now is not enough. I want more of him and more of him. And I, so I live my life in his direction so that each day, each year, each, each you know, uh, season of my life that passes by, I'm, I'm closer to looking like Jesus than I am like who I was on the day that I got saved. And so we have to be people who refuse to let go of a good conscience. And so we gotta be, we gotta be, 
unafraid to talk about our conduct, our behavior, the things that come out of our life. Paul is really showing us here that there is a close connection between what we believe and how we behave. You notice that? Like, like if you don't want to shipwreck your faith, then you got to hang on to your faith and a good conscience. So there's a connection here between what you believe to be true and then, and then the fruit of your life, the behavior of your life that flows out of that belief. And, and it's, it's, it's a really big deal. And so a good conscience, let's just, let's just get some understanding here, is where with the help and strength of the Holy Spirit, you are actively seeking to put sin out of your life. You're going, man, I don't want this. Like I, you know, and, and the problem is we all sin, right? We all have struggles. And, and like following Jesus is hard, but like there, is this, there is this refusal in us to compromise, this refusal in, in us to sort of, to sort of just um, lay down and give up and say, all right, you know, I guess, I guess I'll, just, I'll just not win this one. This one will get me uh, for the rest of my life. It's where you make sure that as you stand before the Lord someday, and even now, that you do so with a good conscience. Paul writes to the church in Rome in Romans 6, 1 and 2. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning? So that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live it in any longer? So, you know, he's speaking about grace here. We've received the free gift of God, the grace that comes through, you know, this, this gift of, of Jesus. And, and he's saying, so since we have grace, does that mean we should just keep on sinning because, because, you know, we're good now, now that we have Jesus? He says, no, 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 no. Don't, don't do that. Don't, don't just go on sinning so that grace can increase don't do that. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And so let me help you understand some things. Sin, if you're a believer in Jesus, if you, if you, if you surrendered your life to King Jesus, sin no longer brings you under eternal condemnation. Thank you, God, right? But it does affect your relationship with God. Don't think that sin doesn't affect you anymore. Like it does. Allowing things, giving license for things, like it still affects your relationship with God. And, and, and think about what sin does to earthly relationships. Th- think about when sin enters you and it affects a relationship that, that, that is near and dear in your life. And, I mean, think about how it, how it affects a relationship like that, how much more with a holy God. Like, like there, there is just something affected. It's not quite the same when we allow ourselves to live continually like this. And so this is why Paul is saying, like, we got to aim, we got to aim to keep a good conscience before the Lord. It's not just that we don't sin. Not just that you never sin, but it's that you refuse to take for granted the grace that was purchased for you by the blood shed by Jesus on the cross. And I think that all too many of us these days, myself included, are allowing ourselves to fall into sin little by little by little by letting go of a good conscience. It's not that bad, right? not that bad. I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. You know, we, we think like that. We talk like that. But there's a difference between being legalistic, which we talked about last week, and we want to reject legalism, um, and then giving yourself over to sin and allowing things, giving license to things that the Bible is just not okay with. I remember being a youth pastor in the, um, like 2005 through 2010, and, and uh, uh, this is probably a terrible example, but I remember, you know, at that age, you know, we had these kids, and they were you know, we do um, mission strips, and we do, like, lock-ins, and take them to, like, youth retreats, and we do camps, and, you know, there's always be kids, like, coupling up, you know, trying to, like, and their parents aren't around, and they just think, you know, I'm going to be, you know, 
the cool guy who's down for whatever. So I used to just, you know, probably prepped me for parenting, but I, I just uh, would walk around and I'd be like, hey, probably should leave room for Jesus, you know? Like, probably, probably shouldn't be, eh, separate, you know? It's eh, kind of gross. Like, you know, and, and tell him, you know, hey, let's leave room for Jesus. I mean, like, basically, in a funny way, what I'm trying to say is like, hey, you got to make sure that, like, whatever you're doing as you're coupling up at your age, like, you're, you're, you're hanging on to a good conscience before the Lord. Like, don't do things that, like, bring shame and guilt and affect your conscience before the Lord. Like, we're the same. We're the same. This is the risk for all of us. And Hebrews chapter 6 tells us this. It says, we want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. Let's, let's read that again. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. It's a good word. The second way to make sure you don't shipwreck your faith is by refusing to let go of your faith. Just refusing to let go of it. I'm talking about doubt and unbelief here, right? And there's, been, there's been many times I can think of, of like, key critical junctures of my life following Jesus where faith has not been easy, where doubt has crept in. Doubt is incredibly common, but there is a difference between experiencing doubt and then giving yourselves over to doubt and unbelief. Taking yourself down the road of doubt so far that it, become, that it can become so difficult for you to ever recover. And what I've noticed in my life is that doubt usually sets in. My, my, my beliefs about God, my faith, doubt sets in when I go through things I didn't plan on going through. You know? I, those are usually the moments. I, I don't know if you've experienced that yourself. Like, like, like maybe you just, you just, I don't know, your faith just feels different because you experienced something you thought God could step in and intervene and he didn't and you're just not sure what to do with that. But I want to give you like a big thought and I want you to take this thought with you. I want to challenge you wherever you are at right now and it's this if you're taking notes, that a faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. Okay? A faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. The Bible says that when your faith is tested, that's when your endurance has a chance to grow. James 1 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. That's the most ridiculous sentence in the entire Bible, but it's true. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. He says, Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking anything. In other words, we are on a journey. We are on a race. There's going to be times where you're going you're to be tempted to give up and tempted to just stop. But like, like don't. Like, like develop that perseverance in you. When your faith is tested, let it do what it's meant to do. Let it, let it produce in you a perseverance that you haven't always had. Cling to Jesus persevere through the testing of your faith and, and, and let, the, let the perseverance, let the testing finish its work, the Bible says, so that you can be, then become mature and complete, not lacking anything. Like, like we are, that's what we're seeking and that's what we're chasing after. And, and the reality is, is it doesn't matter how long you've been coming to church. That doesn't, that doesn't, that doesn't what produces maturity in you. Right? 
I think I'm right. I thought I'd get an amen. Like, I, 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 it's not what produces maturity in you, just coming to church. Nodding with me in agreement isn't what produces maturity in you. It's clinging to Jesus when, when things don't go the way you thought they would and allowing the testing of your faith to, to instead of shipwrecking your faith, cause you to persevere through it so that on the other side there is something deeper, something stronger, something greater in you than, than before. A faith that is matured in Jesus. Jeremiah 12.5, God says to Jeremiah, if you have raced with men on foot and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? If you stumble in safe country, how will you manage in the thickets by the Jordan? Interesting. Interesting thought. God's telling the prophet Jeremiah here that his present challenges, which were great, by the way. You know that Jeremiah was essentially a failure in ministry? I mean, according to modern day standards. I mean, never once saw someone turn and repent and from their sin and follow God, not one. I mean, an utter failure by modern day standards. The mouthpiece of God to a people who didn't want to hear it. And God's telling the prophet Jeremiah that his present challenges are preparation for even greater ones. Because if you've raced with men on foot and they've, they've worn you out, how can you compete with horses? <laughs> it's not going to work. And so this is a warning that the race that Jeremiah is on is far from over. And to let these current challenges strengthen you so that you can endure the more difficult challenges that will come down the road. Galatians 5, 7, Paul writes to the church in Galatia and he says these, these haunting words. He says, you were running a good race. Past tense. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? You were running a good race. This could have easily have been said of Hymenaeus and Alexander, Right? At one point, you were running a good race. What happened? What happened? You know, every year, when, uh, when the calendar turns, millions and millions of people make New Year's resolutions. And uh, I mean, you probably, you probably all did that this year. You know, you, you, I, I've stopped making New Year's resolutions because um, I just don't keep New Year's resolutions, you know. But I... Uh, um, did you know that, there, that even though there's a day for making a, res, a New Year's resolution, there's also what is called a quitter's day? Did you know that? There's a quitter's day. It is, it is January 12th. Not even two weeks after the commitment. Not even two weeks after the resolution is made, people are throwing in the towel. Why? Why? Because it is much easier to start than it is to finish. Much easier to start than it is to finish. And so... I've got some, some thoughts here I need, to, I need to get through, and I'll get through them quick. I, I, um, I'm getting to the end. So if you're taking notes, the spiritual atmosphere in which we live right now that we're in, it erodes faith. Like, we don't live in an environment that just promotes faith. Like, left to itself, it, it'll erode your faith. The spiritual atmosphere we are in, left to itself, left to influence us at will, it will shipwreck your faith. And so what do I do with that? 
What do I do when I find myself living in a spiritual environment that, that, that doesn't promote faith, that erodes faith? It means that I've got, to change, I've got to change the spiritual atmosphere of my life intentionally. I cannot just live in default mode. I cannot just take life the way it comes at me. I have to intentionally make sure that I am shifting and changing the spiritual atmosphere of my life so that, so that the atmosphere I live in and the atmosphere that I protect around me does not produce cynicism in me, does not produce doubt in me, but it promotes great faith in me. Autopilot will not work. Default mode will be my undoing. I want to give you a thought coined by Eugene Peterson in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. He says this. He says, religion or faith in our time has been captured by a tourist mindset. You can put that up there. Religion or faith in our time has been captured by a tourist mindset. It's a brilliant thought. What he's getting at is he's saying religion is understood today as a visit to an attractive site to be made when we have adequate time. And he says to us, you know, but when it comes to faith, you gotta, you gotta beware of adopting the lifestyle of a tourist. You've gotta be so careful of adopting the lifestyle of a tourist. Like you would if you were on vacation, you know? where you visit for a while and you enjoy all the high points of where you're visiting and then you go home. He says like, like people are doing this all the time when it comes to their faith and it is shipwrecking their faith. You know, like we like to go to Florida. It's a pretty awesome place. Um, wife and I were just there a couple weeks ago and you know, we're gonna go again. Like we love it and we love to go to Florida. Um, but when we're there, you know, we have no responsibilities. Like none, you know, there's like no responsibilities. We're visiting. Um, and so, you know, I, I think my, I can speak for my wife in saying that even though we love Florida, you know, when, when the hurricanes come or the alligators come, like, we're out, you know? Like, uh, uh, we'll come back later, you know? Like, we don't want none of that. Like, we're just visiting. We want to experience the high points of Florida. I don't want to experience any of that stuff. And the Christian life just cannot mature under these kinds of conditions. It's not the Christian faith. Adopting the lifestyle of a tourist, and it will cause your faith to quickly erode if you're not careful. Look at this thought from Eugene Peterson in this book. He says, one aspect of the world uh, that I have been able to identify as harmful to Christians is the assumption that anything worthwhile can be acquired at once. We assume that if anything can be done at all, it can be done quickly and efficiently. Our attention spans have been conditioned by 30-second commercials. Our sense of reality has been flattened by 30-page abridgments. It is not difficult in such a world to get a person interested in the message of the gospel. It is terribly difficult to sustain the interest. Millions of people in our culture make decisions for Christ, but there is a dreadful attrition rate. Many claim to have been born again, but the evidence for mature Christian discipleship is slim. Wow, right? And I think what Peterson is getting at here is he's saying, hey, there's a lot of people who start well. They don't endure. They don't finish the race. They don't finish the race. 
Friedrich Nietzsche said this. He said, the essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be long obedience in the same direction. There thereby results and has always resulted in the long run something which has made life worth living. This, this quote by Nietzsche is, is really what inspired the book that Peterson wrote, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. He's saying, look, like, like we want quick and fast results. Most of us, like when it comes to our spiritual life, like, like we're, we're, we're like sprinters. Like we just, we want it quick. We want the change. We want discipleship to happen fast. We want life change and transformation, transformation to happen overnight. And, and Peterson's saying, look, 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 you all got to understand, like that's how the world works. That's how, that's, that, those are like value systems in the world, but that doesn't work when it comes to like forming your soul. Like following Jesus, he says, is a long obedience in the same direction. And so if you want to be somebody, and I want to be somebody who, 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 who you know, refuses to, to shipwreck our faith, then we got to be people who hang on to our faith by this long obedience in the same direction. And so look at this thought as I'm closing. To be faithful all the way to the end will require a long obedience in the same direction. That, that's, that's what this is. It's a long obedience in the same direction. And there's so many times where like, man, man, I don't have like spiritual goosebumps every day when I wake up. I'm not like, oh man, I just felt the presence of God. It's not that. I, I don't have, I mean, we don't have these moments like every single day. Like you don't wake up and have a band who's just like going to town, like bringing the presence of God, like in your bedroom. Like nobody has that. Like, no, no, no. Like that's not that. Like it's, listen, following Jesus is a, it, it is a long obedience in the same direction. It's refusing to give up no matter what comes your way. It's a faith that endures to the end. It's, it's, this, it's this conviction in me that no matter what comes my way, no matter what life looks like, like, like this is a non-negotiable with me. Like I will not, I will not give up. Finishing well is the accumulation of, of small steps. The accumulation of small steps headed in the right direction headed in the right direction. And this is why, as I'm closing, Paul writes in 2 Timothy. So we're in 1 Timothy. But he wrote two pastoral epistles. Well, three. He wrote one to Titus too, but the second one to Timothy. Towards the end, Paul writes this to Timothy. He says about himself, he says, I have fought the good fight. So he tells Timothy to fight the good fight of faith, like more than once. And then, and then in his second letter to Timothy, he's like, hey, by the way, like, I have fought the good fight. He says, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. Like, I've kept it. Now, listen, there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. And this is what it's about. This is what, what's, what it's about for you, and it's what it's about for me. It's not just because I'm a pastor. It's because we in this room are a collection of men and women of God. And the end comes for us all. And the goal of life is to get to the end, to be able to say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That's the goal. That's what we aim for. That's what we strive for, to run in such a way as to get the prize. And so whatever life looks like for you today, I mean, whatever it looks like, the great thing, the great encouragement today is that no matter how you've been running lately, you can change. You can run differently. 
no matter what your eyes have been distracted by, your focus has been shifted towards, like you can change, you can, you, you can get your eyes back on Jesus. You can run differently moving forward than you have in the past because the most important thing about you is, how you, is, is the end. That's the beauty of the gospel. It doesn't matter what life has been like up until now. Start running, start running, start running. Hebrews chapter 12 in the NIV, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us and let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Would you stand with me? Bow your heads for a minute. We're just gonna close. Are you living with the end in mind? Just you and Jesus right now. Wherever you're at in this room, are you living with the end in mind? Are you living with the end in mind? I wonder, if you'd let yourself just be honest today, is there a chance that, that there's somewhere in you where your faith is vulnerable? Have you let things in that are affecting your ability to have a good conscience before the Lord? If this is you today, you just say, Pastor Jordan, like I, I got to start running differently. I got to live with the end in mind. And I've let some things into my life that are affecting my ability to have a good conscience before the Lord. I just, just need my mind, my mind to be washed clean. And I, I need that to shift and change my conscience to, to just be cleansed this morning. Could I just see your hand? I just want to, I mean, I, there's nobody watching. I just want to pray for you today. Absolutely. All across, I mean, yeah. All, all across this room. Plenty. Plenty of people. So God, I pray. I pray in this place that you put a deep, a deep fire, a deep hunger in us to fight the good fight, to refuse to compromise, to, to cling, to stay faithful to you, Jesus, and your gospel in the midst of all the adversity, in the midst of all the stuff going on, all the way to the end. And May we hold on to our faith and may we hold on to a good conscience. And so for those under the sound of my voice who, who would just say, man, there are, there are some things that I've allowed into my life that just should not be there that, that the Bible doesn't give license for, that just are not good for my soul. Lord, I pray, first of all, that there would be no condemnation in this room. I thank you that you didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. And so we don't, we don't receive condemnation today. We, we receive your freedom. Your, your best, uh, we receive your best for our life, that we don't have to, to live bound by things anymore, but we can walk in freedom. And so he who the Son has set free is free, and we thank you for that, O oh God. And just pray now that you would just break off everything that, uh, that is hindering our ability to run this race the way you desire us to. And so rise up, man of God, in this place today. Rise up woman of God in this place today. Run the race. Run the race that is set out for you and do it with excellence. In the name of Jesus, we pray.